namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa putang saranang kacami tamam saranang kacami sangkang saranang kacami tutiyampi tatiyampi putang saranang kacami tamam saranang kacami sangkang saranang kacami somatnamauti niyasa tusa 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 to nakmo bangsu tekamunipa nice and refreshing. And within that meditation session, I start off by saying that I pay homage and I give homage and pay my respect and homage to the, the Lord Buddha, uh, which has gave me so much um, clarity and help, healing, helping myself and others with the practice of meditation, the rightly guided self, enlightened, self-taught, Lord Buddha. The second I pay, pay homage to is the Dhamma, which is the divine truths that govern all that is in creation and the, all that has been created. Third but last is the Noble Sangha, which is the rightly guided community of companions, disciples of the Lord Buddha from the day that he has passed on to Nibbana and those who are present until the present moment. And I use them as a refuge for myself, so therefore I may be victorious in my wholesomeness, victorious in my action, victorious in my speech. So I may represent the Dhamma, represent the Buddha and the Sangha in a way that I'll reach the hearts of myself and reach the hearts of those who are around me, those who are uh, neutral with me those who are uh, at uh, conflict with me and to all beings that share the same breath as I do and then I use that and share it with all of them at the same time and let that love, kindness, compassion, the Brahma Vihara, which we call in Pali, Brahma Vihara, is I use that to, 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 to all at one go and give them all that I have and leave myself with nothing. We know that nothing is everything and everything is nothing. So, um, with that being said, I guess I'll start the small Dhamma talk. Uh, I don't want to speak for, I don't want to speak for too long, um, because I think it's more important that we have a question and answers. I think that's, uh, for me at least, it's more important for question and answers. I've been gone a pretty long time. I'm sure people want to know where I've been, what kind of jungle is it like being in the jungle. Um, but I did have a thought 
that came to me while I was sitting in meditation. Is everyone okay to hear me well? Yeah, everybody can hear me well. In meditation is where you get the work done. Sitting here with each other is lovely. It's very beautiful. This is where we get the clarity to see what has been scattering inside our mind, what has been clamoring inside our mind, what has been constantly chattering inside our mind to tell us to do other than what is uh, going to increase better chances for our karma to be better. A lot of times there are useless chatter, chatter and banter about wanting this or getting away from this. Wanting this, get away, getting away from that. Useless gossip. When you just, when you're in meditation, or at least when I'm in meditation, is what we've been taught. We we look at ourselves as a third person party, the observer. Like you're watching a movie. You don't get that involved. You just watch. And you see who is talking to who. Who is watching what. Who is speaking. Kind of like a person who is a king on his throne. And all these representatives come. And they're trying to give you the pitch why they need to be in your seat and why you don't deserve to be there. And you just sit there and listen to their listen to them like a jester. Why you don't deserve to have full mindfulness of the seat that you sit in and why they're better. And if you don't have the wisdom or you have not developed the wisdom, you're gonna fall for that trick and they never come by themselves. For example, when there's angry thoughts that come to your mind in meditation or whatever feeling feeling sense or any type of contradiction to wholesomeness comes to your mind they never come alone anger comes with envy envy comes with jealousy jealousy comes with pride pride comes with a big gang of people and they sit in your sit in the chair that you gave them and when you get the courage enough to tell them they need to leave anger you need to leave the seat I'm tired of you they look at you and say, I'm not anger, I'm envy. Anger, you need to go. Okay, fine. Envy, you need to go. Envy, I'm not envy now. I'm a grudge. Grudge, you need to go. No, 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 I'm not a grudge anymore. And it spins you in this big cycle. And this is what we have to be aware of, that every feeling that you have is not you. It is just a feeling that comes and goes. And if you open the door for it or give it the opportunity to sit in your spot and sit where you belong in tranquility and serenity, they're going to fight you tooth and nail of why they need to be there. They have to go. They're not allowed to come in here. This is our safety spot. This is where we develop ourselves. We develop our awareness. We develop our mindfulness why we don't need to react to things that are impermanent, why we don't need to react to things that are telling us we need to be less 
then great. This is where the work gets done. When I was first starting out my meditation, when I first started out in my meditation, I used to get really angry. It was my first year in Cambodia. I was my first year as a monk. Oh Lord, that was fun. <laughs> Learned a lot of stuff there. I learned that every time that I went to go sit and meditate, you know, I wanted to be the guru swami underneath the tree, you know, that's what I thought that it was all about. And every time I went to sit there, I would run after the sounds that I heard that, I, that displeased me. You know, the guy had to cut firewood and I was like, he knows, I, I mean, for me, I'm just like, he knows I like to sit in meditation right now. Why does he want to chop wood right now? And then one day he brought a chainsaw and started to, uh, he brought this big chainsaw and he's wah, wah, he's just cutting at this, uh, this wood. And I gave up at that point. And I was just like, you know, I have realized that there's no point fighting what you, you don't have control over. People have things, they have duties they have to do. It was, the problem was me. Everyone was doing their job. Everyone was paying attention to their job, except for me. My job was to meditate, not to be the chainsaw director, not to be the, the, the truancy officer for the children that are running inside the temple, not to be net geo and count and listen to the birds. My job was to meditate. I was the only person in the temple that was not doing their job. And it made me feel real bad. Is that everybody had mindfulness but me and I was supposed to represent or embody what? Uh, I've been in the forest for some time. I started off ordaining in Cambodia. I was a teacher uh, in Vietnam and Thailand first for I think about two to three years previous before that. And that's how I got exposure to Buddhism, monk life. I had a big old backpack on, walking around. Oh, I live in northern Thailand, so not Bangkok. I've lived most of my entire, you know, monk life and teaching life in North Thailand. Not, not so much Bangkok at all. Chiang Mai, Chiang Rai area, even till this day I live in Chiang Rai. I live in Thailand. Backpack, full of tattoos, you know, coconut, your regular backpacker. Had all the amenities that a, a backpacker would ever need, you know, more than what you'd need. And I remember this day I saw this old monk, old man, and he just had a robe, I think a bag that was like mine here. Just a robe and a bag and some flip-flops, and he was just walking peaceful with a bald head. And I was like, look at the peace that this guy has got. Look at the serenity that this guy's got. He doesn't have a motorbike. I know he doesn't have any money. He doesn't have all of these things that I thought were going to make me comfortable. And I can't smile as freely as he can. I had, a, at the time I had a wife, 
I had everything, all this money, I had all this stuff, and I was just horribly unhappy. But this guy had rusty flip-flops. The biggest, brightest smile. I'm just not talking about a high-hello smile. I mean, a smile that made you, it was warm. When he walked by, it made you like, wow, what is his backstory? And I said, I wanted to emulate that so I could share that with people. That was, that was a type of, type of feeling of true love without using any type of words to explain. And I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to embody that so I can give that to people. And that's what started me off the track of, started me off on the track of trying to learn about uh, monk life. Long story short, to uh, keep the time short for you, so you guys can answer questions. Um, I ordained at Angkor Wat, one of the seven wonders of the world. I was the first person in history as a foreigner to ever ordain there. Boy, was that an honor. To walk barefoot around Angkor Wat with a couple hundred other monks that also, but to be the only one. And to be a brother of color was, you know, that was pretty awesome. You know, I don't think my mother ever anticipated that or myself. I never, I never thought that I would be ever doing so. I never thought to be in Asia in general especially barefoot around Cambodia, so it was a life-changing experience, as you can see, and the, the energy, the, 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 the feeling, you could, it's a living place, Angkor Wat is a living, monumental, still to this day used temple, it's been there for thousands and thousands of years, it's been there for the Brahmin class all the way to the Buddhist class until what we have there. It has survived uh, the bombings and it survived the Khmer Rouge <laughs> and it's still there being used. After that I moved to the mountains in the forest and that's where I began, began to train. It was difficult because I didn't speak Cambodian but I was dedicated. Didn't speak Khmer but I was really dedicated. I said that I'm here for a purpose and I'm ready to accept whatever is going to happen. I went to the rural forest. There was no light that we didn't have. There was no rooms for the monks. There was basically almost like an ashram. An ashram and a few tents. Headmaster was very generous. He was very kind. He was lovely, always smiled. He lived just like we did too. There was a room with no doors, no walls, and wherever you could set up your tent was where you lived. I did that for two years, and I, that's about that's all I could do after that. I could, I could do two years was enough. It was enough. So within that two years, I learned unimaginable things. For example, resilience. How important it is for you to have clarity of mind, to have resilience, and to not hold on to the feelings you have. You're going to be tired. You're going to be sweaty. You're going to be completely out of your comfort zone for some some point of time. But you, 
The mind, the body, has an amazing ability to adapt to its environment. You start to prioritize what's important for you to pay attention to and what is important for you not to. It's not so important for you to wear lotion. It's not important, so important for you uh, to care about pedicures. It's not so important for you to worry about um, things that are going to pull you out of meditation, meditation practice or your training. Hamburgers, pizza, you know, you know, we like our hamburgers and pizza. You know, the Westerners, we like, you know, we like to go around our, uh, we like foods. We like those flavors. You're not going to the mountain to have a gourmet meal. The food is wonderful, but you're not going there for that. You start to realize that your eating is going to consume a lot of your time for practice. So you stop eating. You basically eat enough to continue the practice. You, uh, you learn a lot about how your body works and how it regulates with the with nature. You wake up you wake up when all the other animals that wake up during the daytime, that's when you also start to wake up. And when the animals that are when the animals that fall asleep at night fall asleep, so do you. It is the weirdest thing I've ever experienced in my life. But your body just automatically regulates. There's, there's not any clocks in the temple. Who goes there? Who goes to the deep forest? There's no concept of clocks and I have to be somewhere. So your whole understanding of time stops. You follow seasons. We know what time it is by looking at the tree and knowing what fruit comes available. We know what time. We know what, what the weather is going to be like. Whether you see a snake or whether you see a, a certain bird or hear a certain insect, we know what, what season it is. I didn't even know the mind can pick up on that type of stuff. I didn't even know that that ability was available. So it's telling you that your body can go right in synchronicity with everything in nature. And then you start to learn your place. You really start to see, wow, that ego of mine really thought it was something. Pair of Nikes that make me feel like you're king of the world, but they're nothing here. What does your pair of Nikes mean here? What does your car mean here? You can't even drive up into the, the hills here. One small scorpion, that's all it'll take to realize how little and inconvenient or how insignificant you are. One small scorpion, that big. Let a snake bite you, and you got 15 minutes. You'll realize how. Your footprints on the earth, you start to walk a little more humble. Who's going to take you anywhere with no language? You just drove from Siem Reap all the way into the deep forest mountain. How many hospitals did you see? None. So you start to be a little more cautious about how you talk to people, where you put your foot, where you use the restroom. And what you complain, what you open your mouth about. 
Because the last thing you want is for people to get tired of your presence, foreigner. Because those people, you're going to have to depend on those people. And you want them to depend on you for good, not for a nuisance. So you start to ask questions about who really am I? What do I represent? You start to ask yourself questions is questions like are the thoughts are my actions are my, 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 my thoughts, my actions, and my speech doing more to bring goodness uh, eradicate negativity are those thoughts are those actions and those impulses are they bringing uh, compassion, love, and kindness towards me or are they pushing it away you'll start to make those evaluations really quick and you also start to realize when you're doing meditation it's meditation all the time not just once a day you meditate for one hour then you go to another hour so you have two hours in the morning then you have lunch or excuse me you have breakfast then when that's finished you have another one hour meditation then you clean up the temple mindfully that's another hour then you have a rest and then you have you know small duties maybe you want to wash some clothes then after that you have your, your main lunch before the noon then after that you might rest it's pretty hot you wake up again and then you start more meditation two hour session two hour two hour session then another two hour session then you clean get ready for chanting and prayer so the full day is meditation at least six to seven hours a day six to seven hour a day medium minimum of meditation every day and that's for the people who practice not everybody who lives in the monastery practices meditation some people are there for different responsibilities and different aims that's also another task that's going to help uh, your practice when I was there super monk you know I used to look at some of the monks that didn't they didn't practice like I did and there comes Mr. Ego oh those guys are they don't they're not real monks I'm a real monk because I meditate and I realized that attitude which I was holding on to was was why I couldn't develop meditation better is because I kept comparing myself to people who were who knew their job but I didn't know why so there was another problem I was once again doing more than I was supposed to. I was overkilling. I was outside of my job. My job was to pay attention to me and me only. So therefore, others can pay attention to them and them only. There's a billion things I could talk about. I'm going to continue jumps, jump ship two years in Cambodia. I want to develop more training in Thailand because they had more access to uh, to books that were in English and it was a more safer environment uh, more uh, structured environment for monks and I've been living there to the current moment practicing and training in the forest practices of Thailand it's pretty comfortable there and I moved there and now I came back after nine years to check on my mother and to talk about um, the book that I wrote, 
a poem-based Dharma book. Uh, this is the first time, the first book I wrote from a collection that I have, uh, I've had. I wanted to see what that was like. And this time when I'll be going back to Thailand, I'll be moving to Taiwan to further my training and my practice, to learn Chinese language and to take on uh, Zen practices, to develop my practice a little further so I can be more adaptable when I come back to America to create something for us that can't always travel to Asia so easily. And with that being said, I also did want to tell you, I am not a PhD scholar in Buddhism. I am not a master meditator, but I am the master and creator of my own actions, my own karma, and my own experiences. And whatever I have done, it is the developing. I don't know a lot, but I do know what I've done. And I do I work hard to uh, keep an open mind and open heart, and I hope that um, we will develop together today and share what we have with each other. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you, Bhantai, for your words, and we're going to have some time for questions and answers. You spoke so lovely, in such a lovely way, about what the meditation, the beautiful parts of the meditation for you. And one of the other beautiful parts of our practice is the practice of dana and how our teachers, Tim and Tawari and Bhante, offer so freely the Dhamma to us. And in exchange, we offer freely our generosity to support them. And so um, we here in the room, there are two baskets on the table, one for Seattle Insight, which is a totally volunteer-run organization, and one for Bhante Panya. And then for those folks on Zoom, um, you can contribute at, uh, through Venmo, and it's at Bhante, which is spelled B-H-A-N-T-E. And just wanted to say thank you for all your generosity all along. So I'm going to start the Q&A by asking Bhante, what it's been like with his family here in Seattle, both for them and for him as he made this big decision to um, become a monk and live in Asia. That is a... Uh, that is a... Um, hello? Oh, okay, yeah, we got, we're working. You got, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, good. Uh, just to add on to that, um, uh, I didn't bring enough 
books, I didn't, I really did not expect that this many people were going to come. But I, I got you guys a copy of my book. It's in two languages. It's in English and Vietnamese. Because they're one of the biggest uh, bodies of uh, Buddhists in this in Seattle is the Vietnamese community. So I did that in honor for them, and they were very hospitable to me. They they took me in as their their uh, the little the little son. So I wrote their book for them. I wrote a book for them, and also a gigantic bag of blessed amulets from our temple that I brought back from Thailand. And I will also give you guys this as a donation as well. So they're blessed amulets from our temple. They're real. They're real amulets. So I would like you guys to have that also. So for me to you. I hope I have enough. Our elder has asked a very, really powerful and good question. She asked a really important question, and the question was, how do my family, how do my mother feel about the ordination, monk life, me just leaving in general? Um, let's say when I first left uh, America, it was in 1998. I wasn't a monk, I was just a young kid trying to find out what life really was, was this all I had to offer was American lifestyle, the ideal lifestyle to live, is everybody in the world as kind as we are? Is everybody just like us? Is everybody like this? And I found out that no, they weren't. Um, I lived in Arabia, I lived in Africa, I lived in Middle East for maybe 16 years from various countries living around. And then, I, uh, after that, took its course, ran its course, I was a teacher, still am a teacher. After I was learning, I got a couple degrees over there. And when that ran its course and I started to develop my my practice, developed my mental maturity, my spiritual maturity. I came back home. I was married at the time. I came back home to America, and I, I didn't last more than three years. It was, it was rough trying to uh, reassimilate back into American life. It was the weirdest thing ever. I felt like a foreigner. I just felt foreign, like I didn't know what to do, where to get help. I was, I was on... EBT. It was just so many things that I didn't. I didn't know how. I don't know how you guys live anymore. I was like, oh my goodness, it was so easy outside. It was so easy outside, at least for me, working and just living and just having a life. And I couldn't. I came back here and there's. I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't cope. So I hopped. I jumped ship again. I saved up enough money and lived in Africa for a couple of years. That was that was pretty interesting too, but it was still a lot more easier than here, which asked, I, it popped a lot of questions in my mind. But I never I never forget the time that uh, when 
it was time for me to leave. It was strange. My mother knew. I don't know how she knew. I didn't tell. I didn't tell anybody I was leaving. I just, uh, I walked up on the porch. My mom was sitting there. It was me and my wife. And, and I had a backpack on and she was sitting there and she just looked at me and she said, you're leaving, aren't you? And I was like, yeah, I just came by to tell you that we're, we're leaving. And the, dis the look in her eye just, uh, I didn't, I didn't know how to, I didn't understand that feeling. It's a feeling, I, I understood it non-verbally, but I, I, I didn't understand her feelings until it happened to me, right? So she looked at me and she just said, yeah, well, okay, I'll see you when you get back. And now I understood what that, the eye she gave me, and I, I know what that meant. So I left and came back now nine years later and how I understood the way she felt was because I was in this village in Thailand the real story this is this was this year earlier the beginning of this year I was in this rural forest again north north Thailand close to the border of Burma some some village isolated deep into the mountain, rural mountain. And there was this, I wanted to practice by myself. This village hadn't had a monk that lived there and they said, I think they, they, think they said about six years. It's just a small room. It looked like a storage almost hall. That was their temple. I said, we haven't had a monk here. It's six years, which is almost outrageous for Thailand. It's outrageous. And the cultural setup they have, that's, that is, it's unheard of. So they gave us the backstory that the monk that, that, that used to came here before was deplorable behavior. He wasn't a good monk and he used to do things that uh, were left such a bad taste they didn't want a monk to stay here. So they said I was the first monk. I had another friend of mine who was Thai. He brought me there. He said, you're the first monk that came here in six years. And I was like, well, we're looking to re re you know, we renovate the temple and bring the Dharma, the Buddha, the Sangha back here. I, I don't want anything from you. I, don't, I just want to be a good monk. There was no Wi-Fi. There was no electricity. There was no water. There was just a hall to sleep in. Oh, the trees were overgrown. There was a place to meditate. The community was nice. Okay, They weren't hostile or anything. But I understood how my mother felt when he got on his motorcycle and he said, all right, I'm leaving you here by yourself and they'll take all your stuff. You call this number and they'll bring all your stuff from the, the town temple, they'll bring it here. And it hit me real hard. I didn't speak that dialect of Thai they spoke. It was like a local language. And when he said, okay, I'm getting ready to get out of here. This is your last, this is it. I'm going to go do my job and you'll sit here. They'll take care of you. You're the monk. They'll take care of you. I just felt to myself, boy, 
it's about to get rough. There's no electricity, there's no water, nothing. I was like, I felt like, man, you just left me here to die. Because if something was to happen, something was to go wrong, if there was a need that I wanted, how was I going to be able to communicate to, to people? I already think it's weird enough that a monk is here and they haven't seen anybody here. Yes, I do have pictures and videos to prove I was there, so if anybody wants to see them, get at me, I will show you. I will show you exactly what I'm talking about. It was beautiful. But I knew how my mother felt at that time. Because I looked at him the same way and I know he felt it. It's that you just left me here. You abandoned me here. I don't have no one to depend on. He went down to tell the people that he was getting ready to leave. Luckily, the lady was like, well, we've had some, we've had a, a we have some to, we had a talk last night, the village chief, and they were like, we're just not ready to have a monk be here. So you guys should find another place to practice. Boy, was I relieved. I was so happy that, that they said that because I just wasn't, you know, although I was committed to finding a place to practice, I just wasn't committed to be there. So I was actually kind of happy that they made that decision that they weren't ready for me to be in that spot. I was like, okay, well, I'd, I'd rather be somewhere I'm welcome than be somewhere where I'm not. And the amenities are too, too minimal for me. It was just too riveting. It was just too much, too, too much pressure. How do I recharge my phone? How do you, you got to have your phone out there? The Wi-Fi was great, by the way. I don't know how they did it, but the Wi-Fi was great. I don't understand how they did that. Thailand is really known for having good Wi-Fi, by the way. That, and um, I knew how my mother felt, man. She now uh, is my biggest supporter. She loves uh, the life that I live. She said she's noticed that there's like a, a 180 degree turn in my life, not 360, because that just means I just went to a full circle. So it was a complete opposite of the lifestyle that I used to live before. And if you knew anything about my lifestyle from before, you'd be like, oh my God. I wasn't, al I wasn't always Buddhist. I belonged to another religion that was not so has, so welcoming to anyone except for themselves. And my religion before was not so welcoming to any. <laughs> it was just a very tragic time. But I was young, credulous, and I had an idea. And that's how, that's how they always get you, being young, credulous, naive. And, and I guess that all added up to where I am right now learning how to be accepting of people for who they are and not how I want them to be. So um, I'll make that the end of that. And I would love to open up for people to ask anything you like about meditation or development or, you know, the book or just you want to share something. I'd love to hear about your story or hear about you as well. This guy with a really cool beard. I love your beard. I think it's real. I've been looking at this guy's beard and I realize, I just wanted to tell you I love your beard, man. I really like it. So if anyone does have a question, please, uh, please uh, tell me or you know, ask. I would love to hear from you guys. Would you read us one of your poems?
Oh, yeah, sure. That's a good idea. You put me on the spot for that one. I didn't, I'd never, no one's ever asked me to read the poem before. Sure, yeah, that'd be great. Okay, where is it at? Um, This form is called a co The Cost of Foolish Love. The Cost of Foolish Love. One day a man deep in love danced upon a field of flowers, laughing, spinning without any care. What a beautiful fragrance there is, nothing to compare. I can spend hours smelling the fresh fragrant air, he uttered. Continue along his loving way, loving the things he saw that day, he saw a small fawn no more than two days old, and with his love he went to grab it to hold. Carrying, petting, loving the fawn, he thought that maybe its mother had left it, left it alone. Continue along his loving way, loving the things he saw that day. He came upon a lotus pond, picked the only lily where all others were gone. He smelled it, he loved it till the petals all fell singing love songs until the flower went frail. He said, with this love I see no fear. I will share this love for all to feel. Continuing down his loving way, loving the things he saw that day. On this path, by no mistake, he walked upon a rather large snake. It hissed and said to the love-struck man, I'm a venomous snake, my bite is no play. If I was you, I'd stay far away. One kiss from me is not a joke, for it is on, for it is on your own tongue, tongue that you shall choke. The passionate man boldly said, Do not be afraid, there is nothing to fear. Within my love all things can be healed. Let me hug you so you may feel what I feel. The, the snake said, Okay, come closer to my touch. We shall embrace so I can feel the love you speak of so much. They wrapped together so tightly that the time seemed to stop, their hearts beating one beat like a pagoda's tranquil knock. He let go of the snake in a calm smile of respect. The serpent coiled back and bit a portion from his neck. Why, oh why, did you do that to me? I gave you all the love I could passionately bring. I meant you no harm, why can't you see? But you still managed to destroy me. It screamed, he screamed. The viper replied, you are a fool with true loving heart. You have no brain for your concept of love has ripped you apart. While you walk foolishly across the field, that fragrance you smelled were hundreds of dove flowers. You trampled with your heel, they were killed. The small fawn that you unthoughtfully touched took off the scent of its mother, scared and afraid, left alone, now gone, not to return to poor dear fawn. Alone shall it be because of your misdeed. It won't live to see past day number three. The lotus you plucked up out of the pond died from your touch, the petals all gone, the only one in the water to shelter the fish. You took it out, and now the fish are all very upset. It was a bad word. 
<laughs> the lotus she took out was the first blossom in years, shade for the fish from the sun they feared. For this day I will teach you about the love you speak that is ever so untrue. Your love was ignorant, it blinded you. Love without wisdom makes you a fool. I understand love and the way it heals, but my nature is to bite a bite that will kill. Both of us toxic, but only one is poison. One is natural, the other is chosen. What you thought was love was ignorant bliss. Now you lay dead from the venom of your love's kiss. That is the poem. The reason why I wrote that poem was because of what the title is called Thoughtless Love. Thoughtless means mindfulness. It means mindlessness. It's thoughtless. We love things that bring us chaos. We love things that make us feel good, but they don't bring uh, positive karma and they don't bring wisdom or develop us in the, in the progress of self-mastery. The cultivation of happiness is also incongruent with the poem itself is because happiness is something that you must work for and cultivate within wisdom or you're going to recite, recycle the, uh, uh, the footsteps of recycled trauma and, and, and negative karma. Happiness is something that is happiness according to our lifestyle in the forest is, is something that is unconditional. It is not depending on another factor. I'm happy because of. I'm happy because this event happened. No, this happiness is talking about things that are not dependent on anything else. I give for you not because I want you to give me something in return. I give to you because I want to break free from the ego that destroys my own uh, ambitions, my own progress. I give to you because I want to expiate the, 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 the wrong views and perceptions that I have in my life. I want to give, I want to, 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 whether it is a warm smile, whether it is offer food, or whether it is uh, a word of encouragement from the bottom of my heart, so therefore I don't have, uh, I don't have or keep anything what is time for me to, to elevate and move out of the shell in this vessel that I'm in. I don't want anything else. You can just take it all. I don't want it anymore. It's holding me down. It's holding me back. Just take it. So I want to give. So that's why the book is called Thoughtless Love. To really think about what you really love and does it love you. If it doesn't love you, then why are you holding on to it? And if it doesn't have the ability to love, then that is the anchor, that is the hook that is holding you back from elevating whatever field of existence of life that you live in. Sorry, the poem was a little bit morbid, but it has a purpose. It has a real reason for the poem. Um, there's a bunch of them, some longer, some shorter, and they're all developing. The reason why the poem came about is, you know, is I wrote these poems about... I wrote these poems to help me learn how to love myself in that forest. You had a lot of time to be alone. And once you get your routine down, you start to eat yourself if you're not careful. You make your bed, you got your food on time, you got your, your clothing routine, you got your wash routine, everything's in order. And the reason you get like that because 
you don't want to think about those the, the, the subconscious thoughts that are in your mind that are in the back. They start, they'll eat you real good. Instead of think about them, what do you do? You start folding your clothes. Do you, do you understand what I mean? Instead of thinking about those things where you should be thinking about, what do you do? Uh, you start mopping that floor every day. So <laughs> everything gets organized, but after a while you continue to keep organized and it's like, well, I'm still here. Then you start being like, why didn't you smile or spend more time with your mom when you should have and you had the time but you didn't? And those are the things that rip you out of meditation. Those are the things that make you really feel isolated in that forest. You should have done that. You should have done that. You should have done that. You should have done this when you had a chance. My grandmother just recently passed away. And that's when I made the decision. I said, okay, I can't, I can't just sit in the forest and do nothing. I have to go back to my family and try to create something for, for us because people are, we're not permanent. So I wrote a lot of poetry dealing on how to love myself and how to better my practice through writing to myself in the mind state I was in at the time. And this is just one of the sessions.